Thank you for joining us for episode 417 of Live Happy Now. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and this week we're talking about how you can improve your mental health by joining the circus. I'm your host, Paula Phelps, and this week I'm talking with Dr. Sherry Walling, a clinical psychologist, speaker, podcaster, best-selling author, and mental health advocate. Sherry takes a unique approach to processing grief, stress, and trauma using movement as an outlet for trapped emotions. In this episode, she's going to explain the connection between movement, the circus arts, and mental health. Let's have a listen. Sherry, thank you so much for coming on the show. I am delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. This is a wonderful time to talk to you because it's Mental Health Awareness Month, and I love the approach that you're taking because it's very unique. You've created something called the Circus of Grief and Joy, which immediately you have to stop and say, what's that about? Because you don't hear those words together. So can you start by explaining what that is? Yeah. So I am a clinical psychologist in my day job and my side hustle is as an amateur circus artist. Uh, I began really my journey with circus in the aftermath of losing both my dad and my brother. So I had a significant amount of grief. I was really trying to work that out and I needed a really physical practice to help me feel alive, to help me get reconnected to joy. And I found my way to the circus. So it's been something that I have now loved offering to others who are in a similar place. Maybe it's anxiety, depression, grief, and needing a jump start in their bodies and in their mental health. And when you first recommend that to people, when you start approaching people and say, okay, we're going to try circus movement, that's not like, I've been to therapy. That's, <laughs> that's not automatically what you think of. <laughs> so, so what is usually the response? I think people think I'm crazy, but you know, <laughs> I'll take it. I, it is obviously super unusual, but the thing that I really love about circus is it is a little bit of a dance with fear. Uh, I, one of the things that I like to train on is the flying trapeze. I love that. Isn't it beautiful? It's yes. absolutely beautiful, but there's no question that it is an exercise in fear. Mm -hmm. And so for people who are already feeling some lack of control or unsteady in their inner worlds, if we can get them in their bodies and have them have this experience of mastery and with flying trapeze, just climbing the ladder is like automatically you're successful. <laughs> like that's hard. <laughs> right. And then jumping off the platform, you're in safety lines, you're pretty protected, but it is a really like in the moment feedback loop that says, you're alive, you're brave, you're capable, and look at you having a new experience, doing something you never thought was possible. That's amazing. So so let's talk about why movement is good for our mental health, and then, then let's go into your journey of how you discovered circus movement, because we know movement is good, and we could take a walk, we could dance, and you took it next level. So, so first yeah. question, why is movement so good for mental health? We do, as you're alluding to, have some great research around the the value of a simple walk a couple times a week uh, for people who have mild depression is relatively equivalent to having a, a, a Prozac or an SSRI uh, prescription. So simply getting moving helps our body in a variety of ways. It helps our adrenaline. It helps us with a sense of like 
easing tension by moving our muscles. So there's lots of physiological components. I also think just psychologically, spiritually, it feels good to be in our bodies and moving and not stagnant, not feel like we're sort of stuck growing roots into our couch and unable to activate or to shift our surroundings or our positioning. Yeah, because that was one thing during the pandemic that that people, you know, that whole an object in motion stays in motion and the object at rest <laughs> stayed on the couch and binge watched Netflix. Yeah. And so I've seen a lot of people since then that have kind of had trouble jump starting themselves out of that mode of, you know, just being sitting and and not moving. And so what kind of movements do you introduce to people? You know, at the beginning, anything. I think the one other thing I will say about movement and mental health is especially with grief, trauma, when there's some kind of shock to our system, our body absorbs that shock. So our body is held in tension. It's almost like our muscles are clenched and we kind of download that shock into our bodies and it gets stuck there. It stays with us. So in that sense, any kind of movement is helpful. Walking, obviously great cycling. I'm a big fan of yoga. Dance is really wonderful for our brains as well as our bodies. Anything that switches position, moves our muscles, moves things through has lots of mental health benefit. I like circus in particular because of the combination of physical athleticism and artistic expression. So in circus, you're telling a story, often an emotionally uh, significant story. So we're sort of like the combination of like going on a jog and writing in a journal together in one action. (laughs) Which is usually very hard to do at the same time. I find it difficult, yeah. (laughs) So when you take someone in, you say someone's ready to explore this. Can you walk me through what that experience is going to be and how you start introducing them and what kind of movements we're talking about? Yeah, so I run these workshops called Circus for the Brokenhearted. And we usually begin with just some getting into our bodies. We want to get our breath going, develop a sense of comfort with our bodies, and also understand the why, right? Why would we use this kind of movement to help soothe our souls? So we try to get that mind-body connection on board right at the beginning of the day. We do that with discussion, with some simple practices that get us in our bodies. And then it depends a little bit on which workshop we're doing, but it can be anything from aerial fabrics, uh, the silks, if you've seen Silk de Soleil and the people rolling down the fabric suspended from the ceiling, those are beautiful and fun. I also have a workshop coming up in August that's flying trapeze as well as circus riding on horses. So most people are thinking I could never do that, (laughs) but I promise you could do that. How, like, how do you, because performers have trained for years to do those things. How do you take someone through a workshop and, and teach them those steps. Yeah. I mean, there's these wonderful, amazing things called safety harnesses <laughs> So, <laughs> on the trapeze. For example, you are wearing a harness around your body and you've got someone attached to safety lines all the time. So I've uh, worked with kids on the flying trapeze or in aerial acts that are six, seven, eight. I've also had the privilege of hosting people at age 80 who've come really? to the trapeze. So it's possible obviously with really careful coaching and great safety equipment. Right. So, you know, oftentimes with grief, we hear, well, it just takes time. 
And we think that time is going to heal that. And as you mentioned, that grief gets lodged in us. How does not just letting time pass, how does encountering that grief and and incorporating movement start dislodging it? I think when we're in grief, especially grief after the death of someone, it can feel like we are also living in the shadowy land of death. You know, I think a lot of people have trouble getting out of bed, like you're just almost frozen. And big movement connects us to our aliveness, right? We feel the movement in our bodies, we feel our breath, and that sense of after you've climbed a mountain or done something significant, you want to throw your arms in the air and say, I'm alive. That's what some of these practices can offer. It's a little bit of like a jump start or a shock to the system, but in a positive way. Mm-hmm. So the practice of aliveness, I think, is really important. And it, it doesn't mean that it makes grief go faster, but I think it can give us a different relationship with our grief because we're expressing our grief and we can hold our grief from a place of also feeling very much alive. When people do this, you talked about we're telling a story. How do they go about telling their story with movement? Because every story is different. Yeah, this is a little bit of a different, difficult one to describe verbally, but I do have a TED talk called Why a Grieving Psychologist Joined the Circus, where you <laughs> and can we'll make sure, sort of yeah, we'll make sure we'll visually. put a link to that. Yeah, we'll put a link to that on the landing page to make sure everybody can go check that out. Because grief is so many things, right? Elizabeth Kubler-Ross gave us the stages of grief, which of course don't work like neat stages and they don't go in a stepwise order, but she did give us this gift of understanding that grief is more than one emotion. So if you think about sad, what does sad look like or feel like in your body? Maybe you're hunched over, maybe your head is down, you're restricted, you're small. But grief is also anger or bargaining or there's a fierceness to grief. And that might be a clenched fist. Maybe you're staring up at the sky, maybe wanting to yell at God or having a different expression in your body. And so when we give license to ourselves to tell a story, to weave together some different emotions and say, when I first heard this news, I was horrified. I was sad. I fell down. Then I got up and I was angry. And then I sought comfort and I looked for someone to hold or to hold me. You can tell a story like that in a few simple body postures in a few minutes. And it's pretty powerful. So let's talk about your story for a moment and how movement started to change your perception of grief. Yeah, I came to this work really as a psychologist first. Um, I worked extensively with people who had PTSD, trauma-related distress. Grief is often included in that. And I found that I was hitting the edges of what felt like could meaningfully be accomplished just by talk therapy. And that's not to disparage talk therapy. I believe in it. I practice it. I'm trained in it. I think it's really important. But there are also these places where I think its utility maybe hits a little bit of an edge point. So I trained to be a yoga teacher so that I could teach yoga in my clinic to people who have PTSD because the breath of yoga, the movement of yoga, even the powerful warrior positions I thought would be really helpful to my patients. So that was sort of in the back of my head. And then my father was diagnosed with cancer and 
we had 18 months from his diagnosis to when he died. And then right alongside my father's illness, my brother who had long struggled with alcohol use and some depression, he kind of went on down this parallel trajectory of really struggling with his addiction, going to treatment, relapsing, treatment, relapsing, you know, people who've loved or experienced addiction, people who've loved someone with addiction or have experienced addiction themselves would be familiar with that story, unfortunately. But he lost his uh, battle with um, addiction and depression six months to the day after my dad died. So part of my brother's story, I think, was also some complicated grief about how to live in a world without my dad. So I was pretty devastated. You know, I needed to find my way back to aliveness in the context of so much loss and feeling like I didn't have a family anymore. So I found a circus troupe. <laughs> you know? And how did that strike you? How did it come to you that that was what you needed? Because I think that's what's so interesting about you and your approach. It's like, huh, just wouldn't have thought of that. I I wish I'd had some like divine word from above that was like, you, you go to the circus. But of <laughs> course that wasn't like that. You know, I ended up accidentally in an aerial yoga class, uh, which is where they use the fabric to support mm-hmm. your yoga stretching. Pretty common. And I was like, this is cool. I, I dig this. And then I saw some people doing more acrobatic aerial. And I was like, I wonder if I could do that. And I, you know, I was 40 when I encountered this practice I have no dance background. I have no uh, very, you know, very limited gymnastics background. I just, it's not like I was a college gymnast and was like, oh, I'll just take my gymnastics to the sky. This is something that's really been cultivated in me as an adult because I had one spark of loving it and was like, I think I'll just do this more and more and more. That's, that is so incredible. And then as you begin to offer it to people, what kind of changes did you see in your clients? when they began participating in this? I think the lightness. I mean, I think the, pro, the the overwhelming feeling is a sense of, I didn't think I can do that. And then I did. And oh my goodness, what else might be possible? <laughs> like what kind of possibility exists in the world if I, as a 40 something could figure out how to spin upside down on a trapeze? So I think it brings a little bit of mischief. I think it brings some joy. I also think for many people, because of the way that we train in aerial arts, it's a, it's a team effort. You've got some, you got a coach, you got somebody holding on to you. And so it takes a lot of trust to take a risk. And so I think when that happens, when people go through that, they are really uh, encouraged by the provision of other helpful people around them. They're not alone. And- And that can be something that's really missing after the loss of someone because everyone's there when the loss first happens and then they go on with their lives. And so oftentimes we feel abandoned in our grief. And so how important is that touch, that bond that they develop with others? Yeah, I think that is extraordinarily important to not feel alone in your grief because it is a lonely process, right? Your grief about the one that you loved is going to be different than your sister or your brother or your mother. Like even people who are living in the same story feel it differently. It weighs on them differently. But the the ability to be alone in your experience, but in the presence of supportive others is something that feels pretty magical. They don't have to 
know what you know or feel what you feel, but they can be there and be helpful. And circus is sort of a lived reality of that. So when someone decides to do this, do they just do one class? Do they, is what, what's the process? Because like grief, it's, it's an ongoing thing. Grief, does, you don't take care of it on one day and then it right. goes away. So what happens? What's the evolution of this? It can look different for different folks. I do a couple day long workshops where people fly in from all over the place. I'm based in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul in Minnesota. And so people might come and, and have an experience and maybe they never do circus again and that's okay. But maybe they have a moment of that thing that I described of like, I didn't think I could do that. And look, I did it. And I'm proud of myself and I feel alive. Other people, this becomes a practice. It becomes sort of like a yoga practice or like any other athletic endeavor or hobby that is woven into your life. And I'm grateful to know a lot of circus artists into their 50s, 60s, 70s who are still active in their art. That is absolutely amazing. So it's great for grief. Can you talk about in terms of anxiety, depression, other types of mental anxiety that we have? Yeah. How does movement and particularly circus movement change all that? Yeah, I think when I think about depression, broadly speaking, there's a, a need for that spark of a week to like get moving, get going. Depression numbs out all of our sensation. It diminishes our capacity for pleasure and it makes food not taste good, sex be uninteresting, sleep not restful. And so when we're engaging in an activity that like heightens our senses, we can return to a sense, even if it's just for a short time of like, maybe this is fantastic or maybe it's horrible. I don't know, but I'm feeling something. <laughs> and I think that's a baby step. I think that's an important experience for people trapped in depression. And that's interesting. I do want to talk about anxiety next, yeah. but- that is so interesting because I know a lot of people who are still having trouble shaking off some of the stuff that has happened the last three years. It's just been, there's a, been there's a, a lot, lot of, of stuff. Yeah, we've been through it. a lot. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing. They feel like, uh, you know, they'll say things like, I shouldn't still feel this way, but I do. And I should be able to just pick up and go back. And I can't. And so how does that help change their perception? I mean, I think the reality is there's no going back after mm -hmm. grief, trauma, depression, the world in crisis. And so there's only a going forward. And when we are in movement, we are literally in movement, physically, maybe spiritually, maybe psychologically, we experience that this moment is different than the last moment is different than the next moment. And so the practice of movement period, I think is a really helpful reminder that we can't go back to some sort of static belief about how things used to be. We adapt. And the thing that I love about movement is that although this is not perfectly true, it's mostly true. One of the things that we have most control over is our own bodies, right? I can choose to move my arm. I can choose to kick my leg. I'm I'm choosing what I do with my own body. And that in, is of itself, I think this very profoundly empowered thing that says with this, with this thing, with this entity, I'm mostly in charge. 
The world can be spinning in chaos around me, but I can be in my own breath and I can decide to make my breath slower or faster. I can decide to move my feet or hold still. So it's very simple, but it's also, I think, pretty radical to counter a world that feels very out of control with a body that we can choose to use in the way that we wish. You know, it's such a great reminder to ourselves that we do have some control over what's going on with us. And and so what about anxiety? Because that's uh, that's a kind of like the flip side of depression. And it yeah. feels much different, feels very different. And so what does movement do in those cases? I think if depression is wake up, anxiety is like, calm down, come back down, <laughs> come back down to internal homeostasis, right? And there, I think it's probably no better intervention for anxiety than breath. Our ability to tap into our vagus nerve, which is the nerve that runs from the back of our brain all the way down our spinal cord, has connection points in almost all of our major organs. And that is the part of us that is the calm down mechanism. It's the parasympathetic activation in our bodies where we calm down after we've been upset. So if we can have a relationship with breath where we can use our breath to override our anxious mind, our mind that's going in circles or spinning like a hamster wheel, our breath can be the process that slows that down. And when we're in movement, if we're in movement mindfully, we're breathing intentionally. You know, yoga is a classic, wonderful example of this. You inhale with a certain movement, you exhale with a certain movement, you pair movement and breath in such a way that your breath can't get out of control. And it's almost, well, it's very difficult to be in deep anxiety, have your mind going haywire, and also have calm, steady, consistent breath. Right. And you, it's very essential for movement to be able to have that yeah. breath. Yep. Well, yeah. that's terrific. I, I love your approach to this. What else are we going to see coming from you? So we're going to tell people how they can find you and how they can find more about what you've done and enjoy your TED Talk. But what are you going to work on next? Because this is a great mm-hmm. groundbreaking way to approach therapy. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. That's great affirmation because sometimes <laughs> it's a struggle, right? People are like, what? You do what? <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, as I mentioned this summer, I'm hosting a few different um, Circus for the Brokenhearted workshops. People can visit my website, touchingtoworlds.com for more information about that work. And Touching Two Worlds is the name of my book, which is where I really have explored these ideas of how to live in the world of joy and aliveness right alongside living in a world of grief or illness or or death or hardship. And I, uh, I hope in my future, I've got more books ahead of me and more circus shenanigans. <laughs> uh, I also do a keynote talk that where I talk about burnout. I talk about mental health and I bring my dear friend, Lynn, who's an acrobat. So I speak and she does handstands and it's, oh, it's pretty fun. So well, I love that. Well, this is fun. I want to uh, keep up with what you're doing because you have some so you have a lot to teach us and a lot to offer. So as as we let you go, what is the one thing that you hope people really take away from this conversation and, and really stick with them tonight? I love the word possibility. And I think if we in our grief and our depression and our hardship can stay open to possibility, the possibility of change, the possibility of feeling different, then we've got an opening for healing and an opening for hope. I can't think of a better way to wrap this up. Sherry, thank you. It has been such a pleasure to spend time with you today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Paula. 
That was Dr. Sherry Walling talking about how the circus arts can improve our mental health. If you'd like to follow Sherry on social media, download a free chapter of her book, or learn more about her Circus of Grief and Joy workshops, just visit us at livehappy.com and click on the podcast tab. And while you're there, be sure and stop by the Live Happy store to take advantage of our spring special, where you can get 25% off store-wide just by entering the code SPRING25. Be sure to check out our selection of graphic t-shirts so you can share your positive message everywhere you go. That is all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all-new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one. Mm-hmm.